Thank you, Ben. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me again to 1 John chapter 5 this morning. 1 John 5. Most of you know we were on vacation a couple of weeks ago, and part of what we did was uh, stop out in Illinois and see my parents for a little bit and enjoy some time with them. And uh, about the day before we left, my dad came and talked to me uh, briefly and just said, hey, I want you to take this with you. And what he was sending with me kind of caught me off guard. It was a, a neat surprise. I didn't uh, expect to come home with it. Um, kind of goes back to a woodworking project from high school, which is a story for another time. Uh, but really what it was inside of the box that had been made was a Bible that had belonged to my great-grandfather. Um, I never knew him. He passed away long before I was alive. Uh, but his name was Isaac Horace Brabson. And uh, he pastored in Tennessee and in Virginia, as I understand it, late 1800s into the 1900s, passing away mid-20th century. And uh, like some of you, evidently my great-grandfather used his Bible as his file cabinet. Uh, It is not recommended. You will break the binding on your Bible. Uh, While his Bible has like this custom-made leather cover, uh, it's got his name on the front, um, he still broke the binding in his Bible. Um, Because if you shove enough papers in there, uh, that's what happens. So you take good care of your Bible and don't use it as a file cabinet. Uh, Nevertheless, yesterday I was kind of flipping through it because I hadn't really taken time since we'd been back to see kind of what all was tucked in there. And uh, I came across one document that was particularly interesting. I brought it with me. It says contract for deed, and it is just one piece of paper. And I thought, man, that's kind of crazy. Uh, that with one piece of paper, you can buy or could at one point buy land. Um, If you've ever signed a mortgage for anything, like, you know, like, here's your 200-page document. And uh, I remember the first time I went to do that uh, with Henry Barfield, he's like, look, you can read it if you want, but if you don't sign it, you're not going to get the house. I'm like, okay, I got the point. Like, where do I sign? And uh, we just started moving because you're initialing this and initialing that and signing this and signing that. Um, But evidently for him, when he went to buy this land that was in Virginia, uh, just one paper, and uh, there's a lot of interesting details in there, including the price is unconscionably low, uh, like a small fraction of what a modern mortgage payment would be. Um, But as I was reading through it, and I guess just the way things work kind of coming into today, it stood out to me that his name is there, his wife Laura, my great-grandmother's name is there. Uh, the owner of the property previously has their name there. And then there's a section next to it that says attested by uh, to go, here's someone who looks between the one who is selling and the one who is buying and says, yes, I am giving witness to the fact that all of these people showed up on this date. They signed this document. I'm a third party. I agree. They signed it. It's a legal document. It's good. So that I guess, you know, if there's ever dispute, We can go back and say, yes, let's talk to so-and-so. They validated. We go through that with all kinds of things today to have documents notarized, to have multiple witnesses sign things. Stands out as we come to the text in 1 John chapter 5 this morning because inspired by the Spirit of God, John is going to tell us the things I've been writing to you about, God has given witness to them. They are attested to by the Creator, by God Himself. And as we, even as we read earlier, we'll come to this uh, near the end of our time this morning, He says, look, if you believe the witness of men, 
the witness of God is greater. Like if God says, I am giving testimony to this, I am giving witness to this, then it is absolutely true. I want you to keep in mind where we've been, particularly last week coming into today, because he's been talking about, here's what's true of God's children. We saw at the beginning of verse 1 last week that God's children are established through ongoing faith. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. When we choose to believe that God fulfilled his promise for a Messiah, that Jesus was in fact the Christ that had been promised in the Old Testament, we are born of God. We're a child of God, established in ongoing faith. But it can't just stop there. It's been a recurrent theme for John to say God's children are not just established through ongoing faith. God's children are evidenced by sacrificial love. Because if we're going to claim to love God, we have to love all those that are also begotten of God, is what the second part of verse 1 told us last week in chapter 5. To say, okay, if you're God's child, that was established through ongoing faith, but it's evidenced in your life by sacrificial love. And then third, just so we're challenged with what that looks like, it is exercised through loving obedience. We love God first in order to love those around us. And as we love God, the, the best way we can tell if we love God is not just by what we say, but it's by what we do. We obey him and keep his commandments, and we don't view them as like this horrible duty, right? Because the verses told us in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, his commandments are not grievous. We don't view them as this incredible burden that we have to, but rather what we get to do. We said it this way, loving obedience is driven by a heart for God and is attentive to the commands of God. And then finally, last week, we said God's children are not only established through ongoing faith, evidenced by sacrificial love, exercised through loving obedience, but really the driving thought was that then they are encouraged by assured victory. They're encouraged by assured victory because he says, for whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. When we feel overwhelmed, discouraged, like we're losing, questioning whether we can just keep going. Is it really worth it? First John 5 is coming along saying, hey, remember, whatever is born of God does overcome the world. Continue to believe. Continue to love. Continue to obey because you are assured of this victory. Coming out of that then, you could ask the question, so how do we know? And in essence, the Spirit of God is going to say, well, here's what God has witnessed to. Here's God, if you will, signing his name, saying this is attested to for these reasons. As we walk through verses 6 through 12 today, we're going to see this morning the experience that witnesses to Jesus Christ. Or rather, this morning we're going to see an explanation of the witness to Jesus Christ, and then this evening we'll see our personal experience that witnesses to Jesus Christ. So this morning is more oriented towards, here's the truth that God has given as a testimony, and then this evening, here's what it looks like as we experience it in life as well. So let's 
jump into the text here again, 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 6, we read, This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, uh, not by water only, but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit that beareth witness because the Spirit of truth. John has been focused much in his writing on assurance. How do you know that you know? We've highlighted along the way the phrase where he says, by this you know, by this you know, by this you know. He's emphasized that belief is non-negotiable for assurance. It's assurance. And now he's going to say, look, we, we still want you to know these things. Here's the witnesses that God has given. Again, it's a concern not just of John, but even of Jesus. We touched this briefly as we started talking about Old Testament on Wednesday night. Uh, but Jesus himself says, hey, I want you to go back to the Word. I want you to see what God has put there to know that Jesus really is the Christ, that he really is the Messiah. It's John 5.39, John's writing again, but Jesus said it this way, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think that ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. John's going to hit that theme. We won't get there till this evening of eternal life here in 1 John 5. But it's like, how do you know? What witness do you have? Well, go back and look at the word. As John's been laying it out in his epistle here, he's been saying, you need to know from the word that Jesus is the Christ. It's been a while since we were there, but in chapter 2, verse 22, he said, who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. It's someone who denies that Jesus is the Messiah is wrong. They're lying. He says, he's antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. And then we've already read 1 John 5, 1, whosoever believeth in that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. But he's not just been saying Jesus is the Christ. He's been saying Jesus is the Son of God. And to deny that means false teaching. And we'll get here in just a few moments, but I will tell you at this point that John in part in 1 John 5 is coming back to the theme of chapter 4 with these false teachers, these false prophets, and how you evaluate that. We said Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. Remember 1 John 4, we're told to try the Spirit, to test the spirits, and Verse 2, we read, hereby know we the Spirit of God. How do you know if this is from God's Spirit? Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. John now in 1 John 5 is saying, well, let's come back to this. Let's look at Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God. But he gets very concerned with this idea of giving witness. Again, that's why we started the way we did in terms of attesting to or giving testimony to. If you were to scroll down through verses 6 through 12, you would see that this word witness or bearing record or testimony shows up nine times in verses 6 through 12. The Greek word behind it is familiar to many of you. It's the word for martyr. The idea of I am being a witness to or I am giving testimony to what I have experienced, what I know to be true, and yet here the one witnessing is God through at least three means in the text, and in all three cases, he's pointing to his son, Jesus. The witness for John's readers in the first century was important. I would remind you, John writes near the end of the first century, both in his gospel, his epistles, and in the book of Revelation. And as they get further from the time when Jesus was present on the earth, John's writing to say, hey, we're giving witness to this. We're giving testimony that Jesus really was the Christ. Here's the witness that God gave to his son. He needs to be believed. 
And yet here we can stand 2,000 years later, and the need is no less different for us to go, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the one that we need to believe on. As John lays out the evidence to this witness or this explanation in verses 6 through 9, he points to the work of the Trinity throughout verses 6 through 9. Many see it in verse 7. There are some that have concerns about that verse. We'll leave that for another time. But I want us to see the work of the Trinity in God's witness to go, hey, let me lay out for you how you can know for sure based on the work of God the Father, based on the work of Jesus Christ the Son, based on the work of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus was in fact the promised Messiah, the very Son of God. It's interesting again that you see it in verse 7 and in verse 8 that there's these three. There's these three and really again all three members of the God had a reference from verses 6 to 9 anyway. But the idea seems to be both from the Old Testament law echoed by the words of Jesus in Matthew 18 that Whenever you have two, three witnesses, that's how every word is established. That's how you know this is true. So God has given us these different witnesses these, in his explanation of Jesus. The first evidence we want to see, we come to in verse 6, and it is the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus. We're going to look at it as here's the ministry of Jesus, here's the uh, the testimony of the Spirit, and then here's what uh, God the Father has done as well. So we come to the beginning of verse 6 and look at the ministry of Jesus. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. Perhaps as you read those words, you think, man, this is kind of a curious witness. What are we talking about here? And if you were to pick up commentators, you would find a variety of different views trying to explain this. I won't dive into all of them for the sake of time, but really give you two that I think are most appropriate and one that I think is best understood for us. On the one hand, some look and see, okay, he's come by water and by blood and go, this, just like Jesus says in John 3 that a man has to be born of water and of the Spirit, we're talking about Jesus coming and being born and then speaking of his blood going, and he had to die. He did die for man's sins. And so there's this testimony of the incarnation to go, Jesus came by water. He was born. He didn't stay distant in heaven, but he came down to this earth so that ultimately he would give his life and shed his blood. Certainly the incarnation is implied at a minimum in the word came um, because Jesus did become a man, and John has touched that along the way. We saw that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 already. But when we look further, I believe the second understanding, the one that's been recognized all through history and fits the context of what's going on seems more likely. And it's the idea in saying that Jesus came by water and by blood as a reference first to his baptism and then ultimately to his death as well. To go, Jesus is the one who at his baptism was recognized by God the Father. And he continued on this earth until the time that he died and certainly even after that with the resurrection. Again, I referenced it a moment ago, but I'll say it very clearly. Historically, as you read through the ages of church history. This has been the predominant view. It's due in part to the recognition that there was a man who was a contemporary of John in Ephesus at this time. His name is Serinthus. We often don't spend a lot of time uh, studying false teachers. Uh, that's probably a good thing. Uh, but Serinthus was this man who was teaching same time as John and saying, you know, Jesus was a real man, but he wasn't God. 
He became the Messiah when he was baptized. And as the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove, the Messiah is placed on the man Jesus at the time of his baptism. But because of our understanding of the Messiah from the Old Testament, there is no way that he could have actually died a sacrificial death. And so sometime before Jesus died on the cross, the Messiah left. Again, that's an error that needs to be combated. And that is why the, throughout church history, this text has been understood to say, Jesus came. He did. He came at baptism. Yes, that's true. He's recognized by the God the Father. We'll touch that more in just a minute. But he came not by water only. He also came by the blood. Because again, the Spirit of God, through John, makes that very clear in verse 6. He came by water and blood. And we're like, okay, we got it. But then it's almost like he repeats himself just to add the emphasis or the clarity not by water only, not just by baptism, but by water and the blood. When we understand the idea that this evidence is through the ministry of Jesus from his baptism to his death, we could look at it as bookends to his earthly ministry. Here's the inauguration of Jesus' ministry at baptism. If it's particularly in light of John's point in verse 8, to go, we need to remember God gave witness to his son at baptism. And you can turn there if you'd like, but you don't need to. And we read this in Matthew and John, also in Mark. But in Matthew chapter 3, it's verse 16, we read, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. Lo, the heavens were opened unto him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Right at the point where Jesus is going to launch into his earthly ministry, he's baptized by John. God the Father gives his commendation and says, this is my son. This is the one who does have authority, who does need to be listened to. I find it interesting, as has been the case much in our study of 1 John, to see how John's gospel fits with this. Because in John's gospel, we read it this way in John 1.32, John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth the Holy Ghost. And I saw, which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. In writing his gospel, John's like, what I was told by the same one who uh, sent me was that when the Spirit dwells, this is the one by whom the Spirit will go on others. And so I am telling you that this is the Son of God. John was persuaded by the witness of God the Father through the dwelling of the Spirit of God on Jesus so that John walks away saying, this is the Son of God. So Jesus came by water. But again, the text tells us he also came by blood. That's not the inauguration, but we might call it the culmination of Jesus' ministry at his crucifixion and subsequent resurrection. This reference that points to blood, obviously, is not referring to a natural death, but a sacrificial death. So Jesus was recognized as God's son, but he came with a purpose to give his life for mankind's sin. You know, when you look at the events of Jesus' crucifixion, really we could say there are multiple witnesses to Jesus as God's Son. There's probably more than what I've listed here, but think back to what you know to be true from Scripture about Jesus' death 
and all of the miraculous things that happened that went beyond what would ordinarily have occurred. You can listen to Jesus' words of prayer to the Father, asking for forgiveness and commending his spirit before he gives up the ghost. You could witness and consider the fact that there's darkness upon the earth for the span of hours, or the earthquake that occurs and the graves that are opened, or the rending of the temple veil from top to bottom. Those are all certainly miraculous things, but in preparing and where the Lord took my mind, I think really just of the testimony of one who witnessed it, who saw what God allowed to take place there, and we listen to the words of a Roman centurion repeated through three of the Gospels. He gets the witness of blood. Because that Roman centurion, whether you're in Matthew 27, 54, or Mark 15, 39, or Luke 23, verse 47, says, truly, this man was the Son of God. He gets it. I mean, at baptism, God says, this is my Son. With all that takes place at crucifixion, this Roman soldier recognizes, yes, truly, this one was the Son of God. They point to the uniqueness of Jesus' person and his work. So in part, God gives witness to his son through his baptism, through his death. But as we come to the end of verse 6, we see secondly, the second witness is the testimony of the Spirit. The testimony of the Spirit. Now again, whether you read John's account, which really focuses on it, or you go back to Matthew's in Matthew 3, 16 and 17, which we also read, you see the Spirit of God present in baptism. But even beyond baptism, we're told here it is the Spirit that beareth, and it's present tense, the idea the Spirit of God is the one who is ongoing, giving witness because the Spirit is truth. The role of the Spirit is to validate Jesus Christ as the Son of God. I mean, we know it to be true experientially, although I don't want to put a high priority on that. I want to put a high priority on biblically what's true. It's true biblically as well. That when we're convicted of sin, who is doing the convicting? It's the Spirit of God. Remember 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. They're foolishness unto him. Why? They're spiritually discerned, or maybe they're discerned by the Spirit of God. Even in context there, God's promised all these wonderful things, but we can't know them but he's revealed them to us by his spirit. It's not the spirit of the world, it's the spirit of God. Here we're being told that the spirit is the one who bears witness, whether it is at conviction or it continues at the moment of conversion or it certainly ought to persist in everyday life. Maybe if I can jump ahead to what we'll look at more this evening. If the spirit of God is bearing witness in your experience that you're a child of God, it's really important that we don't grieve the Spirit of God. You talk about a battle for assurance. When we walk away from God and live for ourselves and live in the flesh, we start to go, I don't know if I am. And in some cases, I don't even care if I am. Part of the way we remain sensitive or assured of our relationship with God is by remaining sensitive to the work of the Spirit because he bears witness as the Spirit of truth that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Savior. This idea of bearing witness in an ongoing way echoes Jesus' own teaching, reminds you of it briefly from the Gospel of John. John 15, verse 26, Jesus said, when the Comforter, this paraclete, who comes alongside, when the Comforter is come, whom I send unto you from the Father, 
even the spirit of truth, consistent language from John again, even the spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. The role of the Spirit is to point us to Jesus. John 16, one chapter later, verse 13, we read this, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, Jesus says. The point there, again, being the Spirit's role is not to draw attention to himself, but to point to Jesus as the Spirit of truth, to give witness to the fact that Jesus is the one that we need to believe on. Interesting to me, in 1 John 5, when it says he is the Spirit of truth, that both the word spirit and actually the word truth have the article in front of it. We, we could very literally translate it, he is the Spirit of the truth. He's both. It calls to my mind what Jesus himself said in John 14, 6 about himself. He says, I am the way, the truth. Not like one of many truths or a possible truth, but the Spirit of God is the source of exclusive, authoritative, divine truth. So we do well to heed the witness God has given through the ministry of the Spirit, the testimony of the Spirit. We've looked at two explanations, the witnesses God has given to Jesus Christ. We've said here, first, look at the ministry of Jesus from the time of his baptism all the way through his death, and even in between that, we could look at all the miracles he's done. But beyond that, then we looked at the testimony of the Spirit. Now third, finally, the superiority of God, the superiority of God. Verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, that's that word martyr, the witness of God, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. Here the Apostle John makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. Well, look, if, if we come together and in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established, and we take the words of men and we use them to validate, here's what's right, here's what's truth, we need to understand that the witnesses God has made are even greater in the way that he's chosen to testify of his son. You know, we walk through a text like this that's somewhat informational or explanatory. I'm like, okay, great. And so often today in our kind of convenience-minded Christianity, we're like, well, so what do I do? But I would have you know that the priority John gives us here to go, you need to have these things nailed down, that God has chosen to witness to his son in a specific way. Go look at his baptism and the Father's commendation. Look at his ministry and what Jesus has done. Look at his death. This is not what you would expect God to do. He's witnessing to his son. Be sensitive to the role of the Spirit because it is through the Spirit that God has intended to testify of his son, to glorify his son through his work. And so if God is willing to demonstrate his love and appease his justice in sending his son to die, if he's willing to send his spirit to convict sinners, to convince of the truth, to indwell believers, then we should heed God's witness there as well. It's on that platform then that John is going to begin to say, so, because God has witnessed to his son in this way, you can know if you believe this, here's what's true. 
but here's what it looks like. And, and if you haven't believed, then here's what's also true, and here's what it looks like. And in the process, he notes that it is of eternal significance because, again, in verse 11, he says, this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. That life is in his son. If we don't get Jesus right, we don't get eternal life. And so John has told us God's given witness to his son, Jesus Christ. Here's the explanation of that witness. In his, birth, or in his baptism, in his death, through the work of the Spirit, because of God's superior witness. Let's close in prayer. Father, if we walk through this text, I realize that in many ways we can look at it doctrinally and there is value for us to understand the character of your son, the manner in which you sent and testified of him. Lord, I pray that we would also look at it worshipfully or humbly with a sense of gratitude that you did send your son, that you did validate him as the one who is the Messiah to deliver us from our sins. That, Lord, in spite of those who would reject or oppose, we can trust you knowing that your witness is even greater. Lord, we particularly thank you even today for the ministry of the Spirit to convince, to persuade us that we are your children, that we can overcome through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you again for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.